It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. This is the Fox News Rundown Extra. I'm Benjamin Hall. This week's historic NATO summit wrapped up in Lithuania as NATO leaders came together to offer a joint declaration of support aimed at bolstering Ukraine's military capability. There was also a lot of discussion about whether Ukraine should join the alliance. President Zelensky was clearly disappointed his war-torn nation was told to wait, but he voiced his appreciation for the weapons and support that they've been receiving from the West. But back in the US, there continues to be some questions about whether too much money is being spent on Ukraine during a time of rising inflation and higher energy prices. Earlier this week on the Fox News Rundown, we spoke with two senators who take opposing stances on this growing debate. Kentucky's Senator Rand Paul, who believes the US is carrying too much of the cost. And Alaska's Republican Senator Dan Sullivan, who defends sending aid but feels the Biden administration is moving too slow. We made edits for time and thought you might like to hear our entire conversation with both Republican senators, Paul and Sullivan. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the weekday Fox News Rundown podcast. Now, here first is Kentucky Senator Rand Paul on the Fox News Rundown Extra. Well, it's not as if we have surplus funds. It's not as if we're running a surplus and we say, hey, guys, we've got a lot of extra money laying around here. Why don't we go looking for causes around the world to support? We borrow, you know, over a trillion dollars a year. We're $31 trillion in debt. So literally, we borrow money from China to send it to Ukraine. Um, I think it makes no sense. We have no uh, inspector general looking over this process. I've advocated for over a year that uh, the CIGAR, which is the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan, be reassigned to Ukraine. He has a team in place. He's shown that he can find and root out waste and corruption. Ukraine's historically been one of the most corrupt uh, nations on the planet, and we are fools to send over $100 without sufficient oversight. Just in the last year, they've imprisoned high-ranking government officials in Ukraine for malfeasance. So I think it's not uh, an unreasonable request to say, look, where are we getting the money? And two, why don't we have sufficient oversight to make sure they're not robbing us blind? So it's not about the support for Ukraine. I mean, you, you, you support them. You want them to have the weapons they need. But do you think there is a cutoff point that they only should have certain amount of weapons and you want to know exactly where that money is being spent? Is that where you stand? Legitimate debate whether or not we sell weapons to Ukraine. It's a legitimate debate over who should be paying for the weapons. I don't think the American taxpayer should have to pay for them, nor do I think we should borrow. I think those are threats to our national security. The further we go into debt, I think our enormous debt burden is actually a threat to our national security. Ukraine's a lot closer to Europe, and I think Europe ought to be a lot more involved and be picking up more of the tab here. But ultimately, my sympathies obviously lie with Ukraine against the aggression of Russia. But it's a matter of dollars and cents, and it's a matter of uh, the my concern, which is a longstanding concern over the a debt that America has accrued. Uh, you mentioned European countries there. Do you think that NATO members, specifically European countries, are not doing enough now? I mean, only seven NATO countries have met the 2% defense spending obligations. So is it about these countries, the neighboring countries of Ukraine, doing more? Uh, or do you think those countries should also be watching where the money goes and should be more careful about 
uh, funding Ukraine? I think one of the interesting facts that few Americans know is that uh, I think it's about half of the European countries actually run annual surpluses. To my knowledge, I think Germany and Sweden, who both have big welfare states, big government, much bigger and more involved government than the U.S. has, actually run surpluses each year. Their taxes exceed their expenditures. And, you know, I think they're in a position where they, they can help out, plus it's a much more immediate threat to them. So ideally, be more. I think the NATO alliance, when we originally participated in it, was a much different situation. It was a, it was a three million person Soviet army. The Soviet army or the Russian army has shown their uh, inability to defeat a much smaller country with a much smaller army. So I think this is actually a good example of the weakness of Russia, also a great example of probably one of the worst foreign policy decisions that any modern leader has made. Um, I think short of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, they in all likelihood could have uh, kept Crimea over time. Now there's actually a threat to Crimea. They may still keep Crimea, but there's actually a threat to their presence in Crimea because they instituted yet another, you know, land grab. Um, you have also in the past, you've said that effectively it's the U.S. who is to blame for the Russian invasion in part because of their support for the admission to NATO. No, well, I think that's you. Here we are that. now again. I, I, yeah, I think that's you saying that. The way I would describe it is this, is that we have made promises in the past not to extend NATO uh, one inch further. When Germany was admitted, unified Germany was admitted to NATO, we did make that promise. So we have made false promises. We also have encouraged in um, allowing former parts of the Soviet Union into NATO. Uh, Russia has strongly resisted that, and I think it's been an unwise diplomatic course, and it's been a bellicose one that doesn't justify anything that Russia has done, but it at least makes understandable their, their arguments for what they're doing. If you don't understand your enemy's arguments or you don't understand your adversary's uh, rationale, I think you have less chance of finding resolution. Most wars end with uh, negotiated settlement. Uh, very few wars are ended in unconditional surrender, and I predict that this war, when it ends, will be negotiated settlement. And the longer it goes on, the more Ukraine suffers and the more Ukraine is destroyed. So I think there do need to be rational, reasonable voices uh, talking about uh, negotiations. Fox News Radio On Demand on the Fox News app. Download the app and just click listen. When you swipe left, you can listen to your favorite Fox News talk shows live. Swipe right for the latest Fox News Radio newscasts on demand. Fox News Radio on the Fox News app. Download it today. So do you think President Biden should now be saying the time has come for a peace deal and that perhaps part of Ukrainian territory should be handed over to Russia as part of that? Really, I don't think it's the U.S.'s prerogative to tell any country what they should determine. Every country, particularly a country that's been attacked, will have to be the ultimate uh, you know, decider on these things. But we've so involved us with this that essentially it's, it is us versus Russia. All the weapons are coming from us. Europe's participating to a certain extent as well. But we have involved ourselves into this. But I think part of the problem around the world is that America often thinks that, well, we get to make the decisions and, uh, you know, we respect our sovereignty, but we don't necessarily respect yours. But, no, it shouldn't be our decision on this. They were invaded and they'll have to decide. But if Ukraine's position is that they're going to negotiate only when Russia leaves all its territory, including Crimea, this war will go on to the end and it will grind, grind people to the death over a decade. So it's a, it's a terrible position for the Ukraine people to say that we're not going to negotiate. But that being said, it's ultimately their decision.
Shouldn't the U.S. in some sense, though, play a role in that? Shouldn't it be the leader here? Many people turn to the U.S. They look to the U.S. for that kind of moral leadership. And so perhaps it is the role of the government to, to step in. Do you not think that that's the role America plays? I think that uh, you have two poles here. You have on one side, you have Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, uh, sometimes some of the Middle Eastern countries. And on the other side, you have uh, Europe and the U.S. and Australia, Canada, etc., and I think that in order to get to a peaceful settlement, it's much more likely to happen if the negotiator were actually someone seen as a more neutral uh, party. I think there are, other, there are other neutral parties. There's been some discussions in Turkey. I think Turkey is seen more as a neutral party than the U.S. Uh, the U.S. is big. We have might. We have great amounts of weapons. But I don't think it makes peace much more likely to happen if it comes at the, the behest of U.S. demands. Uh, who are seen basically as the enemy now by Russia, as opposed to a, a neutral country that might not be fu funding or supplying arms to either side. You talked about uh, earlier about the expansion of NATO and put it, what a mistake it might have been for the U.S. to push for that. But here we are again this week with countries talking about admitting Ukraine to NATO. How big of a mistake do you think that would be? People who are advocating for that are essentially advocating for war with Russia. President Biden, who I don't always agree with, said this in his interview this weekend. He said basically that if they were, if Ukraine were admitted into NATO now, that actually we would be at war with Russia. So people who are advocating for immediate admission to NATO are naive, or they're eager for war or both. And so the people who advocate for this should not be in any positions of authority in our government, and their, their opinions should be discounted because uh, putting NATO in from the beginning is one of the reasons why we're in this situation now. Same with advocating for Georgia to be in NATO. Both of those are terrible ideas, have always been bad ideas, but advocating for doing it now is actually even a worse idea. You also have to realize that part of the impetus for Russia occupying territory is they feel it's less likely Ukraine will be part of NATO while they occupy it. And there's an ongoing war. Mm -hmm. Same with Georgia. How long have uh, Russian troops been in Georgia? What, a decade or more? Part of their impetus is all these uh, neocons in our country saying, oh, we need these people to be in NATO. And so how does Russia respond? None of it justifies Russia's response. And this is where you have a problem in this debate. But it at least explains Russia's response in wanting to be part of occupying these countries so they don't become part of NATO. Yeah, you, you've also said, though, that there is no national security interest here in Ukraine for the United States. Do you not think that there is None. a national security interest in countering China? Do you not think that it should send a message to dictators that they can't invade territory? Does it not send a message that China should not invade Taiwan in the future? And if they did, there would be consequences? Diplomacy is quite complicated, and the, the one-China policy quite complicated, ambiguous, and difficult to, to explain. It has worked, though, and we have kept the peace, an uneasy peace. I think the peace is even more uneasy in the last few years. But people who are doctrinaire and who say, well, China must do this, and we will do this, and absolutely, um, I don't think they're thinking this through, and I don't think that that necessarily makes war less likely. It makes war more likely. Um, ultimately, you know, in China's sphere of influence within their area, I think it's uh, very unlikely, even if there were an all-out military engagement, that uh, a country thousands of miles away would prevail. And so I don't want that war. I don't want millions of Americans sent to China. And diplomacy does involve sometimes criticizing people for aggressions, criticizing people for human rights. 
But if all of it is blasting your enemy and no relations, then I think you make war more likely. So I'm a Republican who thinks it's a good idea that Secretary Yellen's been over there, that Secretary Blinken's been over there. More conversation is better. I think we need more confliction. We need more conversation between our military leaders, um, general, colonel to colonel uh, with the Chinese army. We need all of that. And we need to continue to encourage and discuss and talk about not just the bad things, but actually the good things, good things about trade between the U.S. and China, good things about trade between Taiwan and China, the fact that there's much freer travel between Taiwan and China than there was 20 years ago. So uh, I think there are, are many things that have to happen, but diplomacy, more diplomacy is one of the good things that should happen. I'm going to have to run, but i got time for one more question. Well, I wanted to ask one thing as well, just about the Free Speech Protection Act, uh, which I know you're about to announce. You effectively want to make it illegal, uh, have big fines if, if the government interferes or edits in any content which is found on social media. Is it right to say that stems from the attempts to control COVID messaging on social media? And uh, what do you think about that, Bill? In our country, we have the First Amendment, and it's pretty important to us. And we believe the government should not infringe upon speech doesn't say government shouldn't infringe upon speech unless they don't like it or unless it comes from a party they think is wrong. None of that's said in the First Amendment. And you can see how a society would devolve into uh, a very regulated government speech if people say, well, you know, this is disinformation. Virtually, I would say dozens of aspects of the COVID pandemic have been debated and the government's position has turned out to be wrong. So, for example, do masks prevent the spread? Well, uh, cloth masks don't present, prevent the spread of COVID at all. Uh, surgical masks, unlikely to do much of anything. And even the N95, unless worn exactly properly, pro properly don't, and in public settings haven't shown to reduce that. So if I say that, and you're the government, you're going to prevent me from saying that? That's what they've been doing. If I say that well, you've always been be infected with COVID, if I say your five-year-old kid's been infected with COVID and doesn't need to be vaccinated because he's already had COVID, are you going to tell me that's misinformation? That's what the government's doing. That's protected speech. Protected speech should be protected, and the government has no business and should be disallowed from meeting with Twitter, social media, or any other organizations uh, with regard to limitations on that speech. I think we'll prevail. The federal court in Missouri versus Biden has so far placed a, a, a sweeping injunction against the government. We'll see what the Fifth Circuit and the Supreme Court says, but I think we have a very good chance of prevailing to all the way to the Supreme Court. The, thank you. Were the national security um, elements to that? Protected speech, it, it doesn't involve uh, threats from countries, terrorism, child pornography, child trafficking. Anything that's illegal, the government's always been free to, to talk about. Protected speech is uh, things that involve opinions. So anything that involves an opinion, the government can't do. But the, if you are, you know, involved with something illegally, obviously the government has the ability and always will. And nothing in our legislation prevents the government from going in and discussing speech that is uh, discussing illegal activities. Senator, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks. We thank Senator Paul for joining us. And now here is Alaska Senator Dan Sullivan on the Fox News Rundown Extra. First of all, I think the NATO summit made important progress on that very issue. Alaska's Republican Senator Dan Sullivan has been pushing for the president to make sure our fellow alliance members pay their fair share when it comes to Ukraine's defense. The issue that I've been really pressing that goes to your question is the importance of strengthening NATO and continuing to support Ukraine 
with regard to military assistance, intelligence. But, and this is a really important one from my perspective, the issue that I was really focused on over in Lithuania was the burden sharing and 2% commitment that has been a goal of NATO members, a requirement supposedly, but as you know, has not been met. And you may have seen the letter that I sent to the president. I actually hand delivered it to him yesterday, mm -hmm. but it's bipartisan. It's over a third of the Senate. We had a provision in the Defense Authorization Act that I authored that's a much more hard hitting saying the Secretary of Defense shall prioritize training, deployments, equipment to NATO countries that have hit the 2%. And the reason this is important for Ukraine is that one of the things that I've been concerned about is that I think the lack of progress on the 2% issue in NATO has the potential in the near term to undermine continued U.S. support for Ukraine. And I think that's a real concern. Is that because you, you, you think that the U.S. is perhaps lifting too much of this burden and that uh, if perhaps U.S. politicians see that that's happening, it might indicate they might pull back? I think it makes it a stronger argument for someone like me who's representing the great state of Alaska, by the way, whose constituents really care about the military. We have more veterans per capita in any state in the country. We have a huge military population. So my constituents are very knowledgeable about these issues and care about them. And one thing that is starting to come up more is, you know, we are providing a lot of military assistance, intelligence, other things, which I think is strongly in the core national interest of the United States, particularly in this new era of authoritarian aggression led by the dictators in Moscow and Beijing. But when your constituents say, but Senator, why are we doing the heavy lifting when this is a fight literally in the backyard of Europe? and you still don't have the major countries there meeting their commitment that they've said for the last 20 years they were going to meet. It's a very legitimate argument that comes from American taxpayers, American constituents. And I think one of the most important ways to address it is to say, well, the Europeans and the Canadians, who are particularly laggards in this regard, are stepping up because they recognize the threats that are now upon us, not just in Europe, but globally. And to me, those are very connected. And that's why in the meetings we had in the last two days over in Vilnius, every world leader that I met with, I pressed this topic, you know, in a forceful way. Not saying that, hey, I'm not supportive. I am supportive of NATO. You know, it's probably certainly one of the most successful military alliances in history. And it underscores a huge strength of America, a comparative advantage of America over dictatorships like in Moscow or Beijing, which is our network of allies. But, but time and time again, the US has tried to make these countries lift up to 2% and they just haven't. So how do you incentivize them? How do you push them? How do you make that a real requirement? Well, like I said, we start the defense bill has a that's going to the Senate floor this week has a provision of mine that says the Secretary of Defense shall, prior, shall prioritize mm -hmm. training deployments, equipment to the 2% countries. So that's the beginning. And by the way, that was a bipartisan amendment uh, passed in the committee with a strong bipartisan number. Um, the letter to the president, that's over one third of the Senate. We'll make sure you get a copy of it, laying out in very strong terms that, hey, we need a particular, I, I think it's a great question. 
But I think what European and other NATO countries used to say is, well, yeah, 2%, but there's no real threat going on right now. Yeah. And as you know, that argument, you can't make that argument anymore. If you don't think that there's very significant threats globally, not just in Europe, but around the world. And as Americans, we have global responsibilities. And one of the things that enables us to address those is making sure our NATO allies are meeting their commitments. So we'll see. You may have seen that the NATO Secretary General's office put out these estimates. There's six months estimates. So there's a, you know, I'm a little skeptical of how countries are meeting. There's going to be a lot more that have hit their 2%. Right now, at the end of 2022, it was seven out of 31 NATO members, seven out of 31. Now, there's some good news in this. For example, met with the prime minister of Sweden. They're coming on board. That was a big outcome, big important outcome of the summit to enable them to join. But he's also going to be able to announce we're joining and we're going to, by next year, we're going to hit 2%. And I mentioned to the prime minister, hey, that is a really great example, Mr. Prime Minister, that your country's not only joining, you're not only bringing very serious military capabilities, uh, you're strategically located, you know, in terms of the northern flank of NATO in a huge way, but you're starting right off the bat that you're going to hit that 2%. So the really important question, it's the one, and it wasn't just me, I would say certainly it was a bipartisan issue, but Ben, it is related to the continued support for Ukraine. And one of the things that I was trying to do when I was over there was really make that case, because I don't think a lot of our NATO allies kind of understand the connection, which is... Yeah, and, it and it certainly is about NATO and about NATO doing as much as they can, but the U.S. leads the way. I mean, the U.S. is the one that decides whether to give F-16s or decides whether to give tanks. And so there's a lot of people looking at what the administration is doing right now. And switching to what the administration is doing, do you think that they are leading the way in, in the correct way? Do you think that they are showing that they really want this war to end uh, quickly enough, or are they being too slow? Well, I've been very critical of the administration's approach in two areas. One is the president has continually put forward military budgets that cut defense spending, inflation-adjusted cuts. The last two years, uh, the Senate Armed Services Committee rejected the Biden budget dramatically and significantly boosted our top-line uh, defense uh, spending. That's not going to happen this year, it looks like, because of this budget deal, which I voted against. So we're going to be under 3% of GDP if we don't get an important supplemental, under 3% next year. I mean, that's a number that we very rarely have hit in the last 70 years, under 3% ourselves. So we're going in the wrong direction. That's a huge problem, especially, mm -hmm. again, we're in this new era of authoritarian aggression that, I mean, it's a, I think we're in an analogous period to the late 1930s right now. So that's one area that isn't just Ukraine related, that's globally related. And we are trying to fix that as we've done the last two Biden budgets where he puts forward inflation adjusted cuts. The Congress rejects that overwhelmingly in a bipartisan way. And Funds it's the not military just the well. cuts. Yeah. It's not just the cuts. It's also the the drip, drip, perhaps or the slow rolling of weapons, which I know you've talked about. And oh, I mean, no, the Ukrainians that, are frankly upset about the. the, the they're not the other, getting what they need. That's the other topic, right? Where I said there's two areas where I'm critic, where I've been critical of them. The broader one is just the overall budget and the prioritization. You see what this administration does 
with every other federal agency, it's double digit increases across the board. And then when it gets to Homeland Security and the Department of Defense, they put forward budgets that are inflation adjusted cuts. That is exactly what Putin and Xi Jinping want to hear. It's what they shouldn't be hearing, right? So that's number one. And then the second one is, and you just mentioned it, is this really kind of approach where they're self-deterring themselves, what I call their self-deterrence, which is, well, if we put forward this weapon system, Putin's going to think that's escalation. And then they wait, and they wait, and they wait, and the Congress, in a bipartisan way, comes in and pressures them, and they finally cave. I led the, I led the efforts in the entire Senate last year on the F-16s. I brought... Uh, I hosted F uh, the fighter, you pilot fighter pilots thing. over. I mean, what were yeah. they saying at the time? What did they say when you spoke to them? How did they feel about the slow drip of weapons? Well, the administration, the administration says, and they're even saying it recently, that, hey, that's not going to change the outcome on the battlefield immediately. Okay, with F-16s. That might be accurate in terms of the immediacy, but this war, as we're seeing, you know, unfortunately has the potential to go on for quite some time. The frustration was, and I predicted this, that it was going to be like the every other major weapons system that we have pressed for, whether it was tanks, whether it was patriots, whether it was javelins. It's the same, it's been the same pattern. The Ukrainians let us know what they need. We slow roll it for several months. We finally then get it after the administration gets pressured by Congress, particularly the U.S. Senate, and they get it there, stingers, HIMARS, and now it's the F-16s. This, in my view, has been self-deterrence because the reason they've always slow-rolled it is they say it's going to potentially make Putin escalate. Well, Putin has already escalated, mm. for God's sake. But where do you think the war would be had the administration given all these weapons at the beginning when they were so needed? Do you think the war would be in a different place if they received the Patriots, the F-16s, the tanks at the beginning? Well, that's the critical That's the critical question, right? I mean, you can't say for sure, but I think given how effective all of these weapon systems have been, I think we'd certainly be in a better place. A lot of people in the U.S. might say, Look, this is perhaps Europe's war. Maybe it's not a national security threat to us. You know, there is inflation, rising energy, gas prices. Maybe this isn't that important for us to step in. How would you counter those views that this does affect U.S. national security? This does send messages around the world. Now, what I've been saying since the minute the invasion happened is that it, it has heralded a new era of authoritarian aggression, which is led by the dictators in Moscow and Beijing. They're working together. They're driven by historical grievances. They're paranoid about their democratic neighbors, and they're willing to use military force and other aggressive means to crush their neighbors and try to divide us from our allies. And to me, that demonstrates a very significant core threat to American national security interests. And the other element of this is I think this new era of authoritarian aggression is going to be with us for decades. We need to recognize that. We need to face it with confidence and strategic resolve because we have comparative advantages relative to these dictatorships that make us much stronger. The ally, the broad network of allies, our lethal military, our 
natural resources and energy, which again, this administration has undermined. And I think really importantly, our commitment to liberty and democratic values. One of the things that you, you see with Putin and Xi Jinping is they fear their own people. This Wagner incident is just one of many examples where they are worried. They wake up every day wondering if the people under their thumb are gonna um, revolt against them. And I do think what happens in Ukraine affects what will be happening in the Taiwan Strait and other areas in the Indo-Pacific, which is a core interest of the United States as well. Is it a good model uh, for Taiwan? I mean, do you think that the US and NATO can respond in the same way by showing China that it would give Taiwan whatever it needs uh, if they were invaded? Well, under the Taiwan Relations Act, we're already supposed to be providing Taiwan yeah. with the means okay. to defend itself. So that's what we're supposed to be doing right now. But one of the things that I think, coming back to the summit, that was positive about the communique, if you look at it, China is mentioned in the threat of the Chinese Communist Party. It's mentioned almost 20 times in this communique. And I think that that awakening of these global challenges and how NATO is an important component, certainly with regard to Russia, because that's the original focus of NATO, but also focusing on China is a positive development. But I'll end with kind of where I started. In all of my meetings in the last two days in Lithuania, I really pressed this issue that other countries have to bear the burden as well. Otherwise, you're going to start to see eroding support in the United States for Ukraine. And I don't think that would be in our core national interest at all. Do you think that Ukraine should join NATO now, or should there at least be a roadmap towards joining NATO? Zelensky was quite unhappy that there wasn't a more specific roadmap uh, laid out this week. You know, Ben, on that issue, I understand why President Zelensky would be unhappy. I mean, being in his position right now is obviously enormously challenging. But the focus has to be right now, which is to win and to provide the military weapon systems to enable them to win. I mean, to be honest, the whole issue of NATO membership becomes moot if they get defeated. So to me, the most immediate priority is the continued assistance to Ukraine. And after there's a victory, you can have the debate on membership. So I think the focus on victory and weapon systems today was the most important thing. Senator, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And All right, Ben, keep up the good talk. work. And where yeah. are you? You're in London right now? I'm in London at the moment. I'll be back in DC quite soon and um, hopefully we cross paths one day. Okay, good. All right, keep up the good work. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. 
pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts.